Welcome to Positive Perspectives on Accounting, the virtual seminar series that explores the enabling aspects of accounting in society. In this episode, we will talk to Elise Belinsky, who is an accounting researcher interested in artificial intelligence, platform organizations, and algorithms. Elise also has a fascinating profile because in addition to her PhD in accounting, she's a trained data scientist with a background in physics, mathematics, and engineering. So in this episode, together with Elise, we'll explore the implications of artificial intelligence and algorithms for accounting research and education, and maybe even answer the question whether algorithm is a dancer. Let's get into this episode. So Elise, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us in this uh, new episode on Positive Perspectives on Accounting. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, about algorithms, about AI, platform organizations. But before we get to that, would you mind briefly introducing yourself to the audience? Yes. Hi, everyone. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me. So uh, I'm uh, Elise Berlinski. I'm uh, a postdoc at uh, Copenhagen Business School, uh, where I started in October 2021. Uh, so I would say that uh, generally I have um, two main uh, streams of uh, research, one that focuses on uh, the calculative practices within platform organizations, and another one that focuses on uh, how AI algorithms uh, may support decision making in more traditional organizations. So just to give you maybe a little bit of the background about, um, yeah, about me. So I did uh, my uh, PhD thesis at uh, ESCP Business School, where I worked on uh, the imaginaries around uh, artificial intelligence and uh, how they participated in structuring uh, their uh, diffusion and uh, the practices of AI. Uh, and uh, so originally, I'm actually uh, a trade uh, engineer in um, applied mathematics and computer science. Uh, after I did a preparatory class in a uh, fundamental mathematics. Uh, and so uh, after my engineering school, I mean, I did two research internships, one in uh, bioinformatics and another one in um, theoretical machine learning at uh, Imperial College. And then I worked in uh, industry as a data scientist during around four years in um, several fields. So I was sports betting, so I created models for football betting. Um, I worked on uh, also um, Actually, the auditing of uh, financial uh, models uh, of valuation and the pricing of a structured credit products. Uh, mm. And yes, and then I worked a little bit in cybersecurity, HR. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that, that is incredibly <laughs> impressive, Elise. That, that's a lot. Wow. Hey, so you mentioned that your background is in physics, mathematics, data science, engineering, and loads of other things. How did you end up in accounting? Yeah, I guess it's a question that I often get. Uh, <laughs> so um, I would say that, um, so basically after my um, preparatory class, uh, so where I studied uh, theoretical mathematics and physics, so I integrated with uh, engineering school and I actually specialized in the study of the production of uh, numer numerical tools for decision making. So, you know, I was already orienting myself towards like uh, the production. So, you know, doing operations research, optimization, uh, statistical analysis to be able to produce tools to assist decision making. Uh, and so at this time, I actually believed that I would do operations research in a company that, you know, they would like really need this and that would be my path, you know. But yeah, and at this time, I only had had one class of machine learning that I found uh, awkward, actually, because I didn't really get it. So as a form of, you know, mix in between optimization and statistics, I didn't really get the point of it. But later, I also did my master's um, internship, research internship in machine learning. And then when I arrived in the job market, I realized that the demand was for machine learning and not operations research, you know, not as widely at least, you know. So, okay, you know, now I had done some machine learning. So I went to a company and I did this, but 
I also realized that there was so much enthusiasm, you know, people were saying, oh, yes, data. So it was in 2013 and were saying, oh, yes, data scientists, it's the sexiest job of the 21st century. And, you know, people seem to think that, you know, it was going to like change everything. And my dad even uh, offered me a crystal ball, uh, you know, like uh, a little bit as a joke because of all this, you know, enthusiasm. And I started wondering, but what is all this first about, you know, like what, like after all, what are these numbers doing? Um, you know, what is new with these numbers compared to what we had before? Uh, why machine learning and why not statistics or operation, operations research and why all this? And yes, as I was wondering about this, and I was also thinking that maybe I wanted to, like move more on the human science side, you know? So yes, these questions emerged. Uh, my interest for human sciences and the possibility to do a PhD also emerged. And I found out about the field of management control and accounting. And I think that these questions about what are these numbers doing to people and to organizations? Uh, what is new with these numbers? Are questions that are at the, at the heart of this discipline, uh, accounting and management control. And then I met my uh, PhD director, uh, Philip Zalowski, who also thought that, you know, we could actually do something together and really supported me. And uh, yes, and so that's how I uh, ended up in the field of accounting and management control. Wow, that's an awesome story. Thanks for sharing that with us. It's, it's interesting because what you see nowadays is that a lot of accountants and accounting researchers are being driven into the area of data science and algorithms and uh, machine learning. For you, it's almost the opposite, that you came from that side and then move into accounting. So it's, it's great to see the opposite effects also happening. And because of your very rich background into AI and machine learning, do you think that affects or has affected your view and understanding of how accounting works within organizations? Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess that in any case, uh, in our uh, research uh, field, there are, I would say, a multiplicity of uh, approaches to accounting and of uh, interest in uh, the accounting, you know, practice. Uh, and I guess that we also have different perception of what it is uh, somehow. Uh, so it's true that probably I tend not to approach accounting by the profession, uh, but rather by the quantification instruments that support, uh, you know, financial logic somehow or a control logic, you know. So I think that's uh, probably something that uh, is very specific to my background is that I never approach accounting by the profession. But I guess that in any case, you know, already in the 2000s with the development of online platforms based on ratings and rankings, this expanded the audit society. Uh, it modified the practices of transparency and accountability production. And so there was already a like, form of extension of accounting. And more recently with the accumulation of big data uh, from always more heterogeneous sources, so not anymore from, you know, the traditional ERPs and things like this, uh, and the use of more complex algorithms to analyze this data. Uh, this has already attracted so the attention of accounting scholars towards the ideas, questions of surveillance capitalism. And, you know, they, they modify um, organizational boundaries because they include external data, they produce hybridization of uh, the functions. And I would say that uh, if I can cite uh, Power, uh, his uh, recent uh, article uh, in organization theory of uh, 2022, uh, that uh, so, you know, these new data architectures as he puts it in his article, are displacing the century long cultural position and authority of the accountant as the arbiter of value. So concepts of transparency and accountability grounded in reciprocity and contractualism are no longer adequate to capture what is at stake in the continuous granular extraction, tracing and tracking of things and their performance. So end of uh, quotation. <laughs> so, um, you know, if the accountants are not anymore the arbiters of value, I guess that um, maybe approaching, um, you know, accounting not necessarily from the profession, but rather from the instrument may actually make sense. Uh, and, you know, it may be complementary with other approaches, uh, I hope. 
Um, so yes, and then just to finish about uh, this question, uh, I would say that in any case there are commonalities and of course differences uh, across the various profession of quantifications. Uh, and I also think that when there is a new profession of quantification that emerges, uh, such as uh, the data scientist one, then it means that uh, there will be new types of uh, legitimate knowledge that will be produced. And so it's also going to change uh, the accounting profession. I was just wondering, Elise, if someone asks you, what do you do or what is your role, what do you say? Uh, so my role, you mean uh, in the accounting field? Well, account, do, you, do, you, do you see yourself as an accountant or do you see yourself as a specialist in AI? So if someone would ask you and you have to explain what do you do, what do you tell them? Ah, uh, but I see myself as a researcher and uh, I think that I'm uh, particularly interested in, uh, I would say, the sociology of quantification and uh, with a strong anchorage in uh, interpretive accounting research. Um, so, yes, that's what I would say. You, you gave us a glimpse in your research interest already a little bit and your perspective that you're more interested in the instruments and in the tools rather than the, the profession as such, the accounting profession as such. I'd like to follow up on that and uh, ask, could you give us some insights into concrete projects that you are involved in at the moment and also tell us maybe what some of the most intriguing findings from, from these projects that you uh, would like to share with us? Yes, of course. So maybe I will talk uh, about uh, two projects, like the most uh, advanced ones, I guess. Uh, so there is uh, one, uh, so as you know, uh, that uh, I've been studying uh, Tinder. Uh, and I think that uh, this project is a, is a lot about, uh, you know, this question of, once again, as Power would put it in this article, uh, cyborgization, um, you know, uh, and uh, also uh, then there is the question of uh, reconceptualizing spaces when we talk about digital spaces and what it is to act at a distance. Uh, this research agenda was uh, opened by, uh, you know, the article of uh, Martin Kornberger, Dane Fugger, and Jan Moritz, and uh, 2017 Evaluative Infrastructures. Uh, and so I think that, uh, yes, uh, we are like, so in this article, uh, I am sort of, I mean, we are with uh, Jan Moritzen uh, following uh, this line of uh, research. So, you know, because there is really this, uh, I think, central idea in accounting um, or like all these studies uh, of uh, the mechanisms by which accounting enable to act at a distance. Uh, and so, you know, these very central findings that, you know, there are different spaces or regions, there are uh, centers and there are peripheries. Uh, and, you know, there is the idea that it is possible to describe on the one hand the centers, on the other hand the peripheries. Peripheries. Uh, it is possible to describe the tools available to the center, maybe specific types of costs. And um, yes, so there are specific flows of power, I would say, from the centers to the peripheries. Um, and so under these conditions, it was possible to describe specific programs that were being applied, you know, based on normative uh, economic theories, etc. I think that online, uh, there is not such a clear separation. Uh, what we see online at first sight would be sort of flows of elements that may appear relatively disorganized at first sight. Uh, and it's difficult to actually describe a clear program. I mean, of course, we can talk about the intentions of the platform owners, but an intention, it's not, you know, it's not directly translated because there is no uh, theory uh, that can tell you, okay, this intention can be precisely translated in these complex interactions. So it's a little bit different what is going on. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think that as so, once again, so I really like this article of power, so uh, sorry if I uh, keep coming back to it. Uh, but, you know, I think that uh, there is really this uh, idea of cyborgization where it's not really possible to separate humans and technologies because they are in an interaction and they become an entity in this interaction, a different entity. And so that's why maybe as he says, uh, critical analysis of subjectivation and internalization may fall short of enlightening the way humans are becoming, uh, if not fully cyborgs, then subject to intense cyborg-like processes via bodily attachments to data architectures. End of quote. 
Um, yeah, so I think that so in this article, we are actually trying to understand what is happening here because you know the, there is always this financial logic flow that is merged into all these flows you know because there are commercial platforms trying to make money so <laughs> what we do uh, and what our study does uh, it's uh, it studies these flows of elements uh, that cross the platform and how users are transformed rather than i would say acted upon uh, in the interactions. And so we draw on a conceptual uh, frame encoded in the agencement theory of Deleuze and Guattari. And what we evidence is that the flows can be characterized. Uh, they are constituted of various elements uh, linked together. And as we investigate the types of links, so for example, are the elements linked in categories by algorithms, or are they uh, related in a more fluid way uh, with other types of algorithms that may not necessarily produce categories? Uh, and so um, as we investigate the types of links, and then we investigate the elements within the relations, because they are transformed in the relations, we can find that uh, these flows produce spaces spaces that are always in the becoming, but still spaces uh, where there are specific mechanisms that are going to um, act on users, or not act on users, but more where user desire is going to either be enclosed, so they will um, be territorialized, which is a central concept of accounting, or otherwise their, their desire may flow and they may continuously invent or like experience the world in a new in new ways uh, and so it's what we try to show is that there are these spaces that are always you know in the becoming they are not deterministic but still there is an organization that emerges if we study these flows so i don't know whether it's clear uh, but at least it's what we try to do uh, in this article um so yes and so i guess that uh, this study it's mainly trying to like uh, you know move uh, a step uh, towards a you know a new characterization of the mechanisms that by which platforms economize and organize because, of course, we need to admit that in these flows, there are a lot of uh, financial questions because platforms make money through these flows. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so this was Tinder. Then, I mean, uh, maybe um, another one a bit quickly. Uh, so, there is a, we studied uh, digital social movements. Uh, so, you know, I think that there is a really uh, the fact that the ubiquity of algorithmic calculative practices that are always merged with the financial logic make accounting research, uh, you know, really relevant to study always like more different fields, because now it's very difficult to separate commercial imperatives with, you know, like any organization that emerges. Uh, and so, um, in any case, uh, without you know spending too much time on this idea, um, so studying like uh, an online social movement and more specifically uh, QAnon, it's uh, an American uh, conspiracy uh, theory. Uh, so what we could find is that maybe online we need to sort of reframe uh, frame theory. So sorry, this um, study was uh, carried with uh, Martin Kornberger and Jan Moritzson. So that's the we refers to them as well. <laughs> Uh, uh, so what we found is that uh, maybe online we need to reframe framing theory because framing is becoming a totally socio-material process. It's not like meaning construction cannot be disentangled from all these uh, like material aspects of the online space. Yeah. Yes. So I, I would say that uh, yes, these are two uh, you know main findings. I'm also working on uh, the data scientist work, but it's really much work in progress. So, yeah. Very, very interesting. 
can I can I just come back to to the first study, uh, and maybe it also relates to the second study because you mentioned uh, the increased fluidity in platform organizations. Everything is constantly in the making. Spaces are concept reconceptualized all the time. Actors are transformed, retransformed all the time. Um, if you could reflect a little bit on the implications for the individual, for the individual manager, for the members of platform organizations, for accountants, if you want. So what? how does that affect who they are, what they do? Uh, I guess that something that is really, really different now uh, from, I mean, what it was before, I think it's uh, that they always work on latent latent variables you know uh, it's very difficult to uh, you know uh, work directly you cannot really like uh, maybe make uh, such clear plans like marketing plans or whatever you know uh, and if we look at platforms what they do they keep reinventing new metrics uh, to evaluate their performance you know for example if we think of uh, youtube it used to be for example the number of watches or the number of likes but now it's going to be the watch time and you know they always have to move and find these new latent variables to be able to strategize uh, to be able to uh, take decisions about how to implement uh, their platforms. I would say this is something that uh, changes. And uh, that relates also to another term that you already mentioned and that also comes up in your research, evaluative infrastructures, right? Um, could you explain to us a little bit uh, what that actually means. Yeah, uh, so this term was, so as uh, already mentioned, actually uh, pinned by uh, Martin Kornbergen, Dane Fugger, and Jan Moritan in the article of 2017 published in AOS, Evaluative Infrastructures Accounting for Platform Organization. Uh, so I think so at the at the time, uh, they focused on eBay. And so I would say that they, uh, you know, referred to online platforms in the sense of market, where we have a third party, the platform owner, who would facilitate exchanges between the producers who own the assets uh, that are exchanged and the consumers who look for the assets. And of course, the specificity is that the platform owners, they do not have uh, a direct uh, power on uh, uh, they do not have a direct authority, at least, on uh, the uh, producers. Um, yes, and so they actually uh, developed this concept because what they evidenced was the need to uh, reconceptualize accounting when it moved online. And in particular, that uh, online, uh, this hierarchical understanding of accounting was maybe not uh, appropriate anymore. Uh, and so... Um, what uh, they wanted, so this hierarchical understanding of accounting was this understanding where there is a center and there are peripheries. And so what they uh, argued was that we needed a more hierarchical understanding of accounting, you know. Uh, so that's why they developed this idea of uh, evaluative in infrastructure. And so uh, these infrastructures are specific because what they found is that um, Power is centralized, but control are distributed. They are hierarchical. Uh, through an ecology of devices, uh, so these devices enable these continuous evaluations by the users and so therefore make control distributed hierarchical. Uh, and so then there is this idea that uh, many people become auditors. Uh, so this was also discussed in other studies, like the one of Jekyll and Carter in 2011, and uh, also the one of uh, McDade at Al uh, in Triple AG in 2017. Um, so yes. Um, and also something else interesting uh, that uh, they uh, developed in this study, it's uh, the idea that uh, platforms or evaluative infrastructures continuously produce new configuration of the world. So things, something that we have already uh, discussed. And I think that it's an idea that uh, they, uh, you know, open towards this new idea. And so now in our Tinder article, we are trying to sort of like, you know, develop this idea further and characterize these new configurations. And so 
then I think that more generally this concept really evidenced, you know, uh, the role that accounting research has to play in, uh, you know, uh, the conceptualization of platform organization, the relevance of uh, accounting research uh, to, uh, you know, understand these new phenomena. And I think that even though they applied it to specific types of platform at the time, it can be expanded to, uh, you know, broader types of platforms uh, like, you know, uh, social media, where we could argue that uh, it is a third party that enables to match users with content. And the uh, evaluations are maybe, you know, always implicit through likes, through commands, extra. So, yes. And you mentioned before also that in your uh, one of the projects you look at social movements and and uh, a new conception of framing theory. Uh, and I was wondering what you just described. Everyone is involved in the constant reconstitution of these organizations. Everyone is an auditor. Everyone is constantly uh, coming up with new metrics, right? Um, how does that then affect also the, the framing of problems, for example, if everyone is involved in constantly reconstructing organizations, how does that affect the dynamics? Could you could you reflect a little bit around that? Yeah, uh, so uh, so basically in our uh, study, so uh, about uh, so QAnon uh, with Martin and Jan, uh, so... Um, what we argue, you know, it's uh, so there is this idea of a framing process that is in several stages. And so we argue, okay, maybe the stages are a bit different. And there is, so the first stage, where we argue it's a stage of uh, linking. And actually, there is a co-production of a narrative. Uh, and so to be able to attract, to create a first core group, you need to manage to get uh online users to co-produce a narrative. But at the same time, you need to be able to act on the space in a way that this narrative is going to be linked, you know, because it's not evident to manage to sort of re-centralize a decentralized narrative, you know. So that's why it's a question of linking. It's a question of giving visibility and then relinking the various elements and then producing a joint narrative. Uh, this question, actually, of uh, this co-production of a narrative in uh, online social movements was already uh, pinned by uh, previous studies uh, with uh, this uh, idea of a connective action. Uh, but what they didn't really consider was this question of how do you play on space? How do you shape space to be able to actually co-produce a coherent narrative that enables you to have a core group? Then there is a second stage looping where we are more interested in how you have actually an organization that has become structured and then layered where like different meanings become central in different layers you know and this is related to the various online spaces but again maybe this is a bit less you know less close to your question and i would say the last stage when labyrinthing when uh, the social movement would become mainstream what we show is that actually um there is both strategizing for from the members of the social movement, but at the same time, the algorithm is also a strategic agent of the platform that aims at retaining people. And so as soon as it's going to notice that people are interested in a subject, it's going to create echo chambers. And so what we find is that there are local, various local frame extensions where, you know, the social movement has many different different subjects that it's going to like spread the various subjects that are somehow you know related to a core id and then the algorithm is going to find out oh this person is more interested in this subject so i'm going to show this person this subject and we find a lot of local frame extensions because of the algorithmic processes Awesome. Elise, I would like to take you back to uh, where we started where we started talking about platform organizations now, you've mentioned a range of different types of platform organizations. Um, you've mentioned studies on, um, on Airbnb. You've mentioned Tinder. But what makes a platform organization and how do they differ from, let's say, traditional organizations? Yeah, um, 
Okay, so as uh, we saw, uh, there are like, uh, we can define them as third parties uh, that are simply going to facilitate exchanges between producers who own the assets that are exchanged and consumers who look for the assets. So they provide an interface and they provide calculative tools that enable or facilitate these exchanges. Of course, there are various types of platforms. So it's something that I would really, really like to stress is that there are very many types of platforms and they do not all have the same effects. They do not have the same business model. And I would say that while uh, some platforms uh, may, you know, I don't know, participate in extending the world of possibilities. Some of our platforms, we need to admit, uh, work on very exploitative uh, practices, uh, as Kellogg uh, et al. showed in the article of 2020, you know, in an Academy of Management Review. Um, yes, uh, but so in any case, uh, on some platforms, uh, so to me, the only service really they provide is simply to match uh, you, uh, buyers and sellers and a specific interface. And actually, they often take advantage of it to avoid having any legal responsibilities, you know. So, you know, and also to avoid to like be able to lower costs. So this is something that Kornberger et al. in the article of 2017, Evaluative Infrastructures, show really well, you know, this idea that they have no interest into direct intervention because this would be a cost to them. So this is really new, you know, to like avoid intervention, um, yeah, and uh, uh, avoid like any legal responsibilities. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, but so I would say that some platforms, they make money uh, thanks to the financial transactions. So, you know, they take some money on every financial transaction, such as like Airbnb, uh, eBay, or uh, things like this. Uh, then they may also make money thanks to advertisements like Facebook, uh, maybe uh, Google, Instagram, or whatever, you know. Um, and then they also may make money thanks to paying subs subscriptions like uh, Tinder, LinkedIn, uh, things like this. But of course, in almost all cases, uh, they also sell users data. And this is something really new that, you know, we become, uh, you know, the product. We are at the same time the consumer and at the same time the product of these platforms. Um, yes. Um, yes. And so also what is uh, really new, I mean, Thanks to these practices, the fact that they only facilitate exchanges, they can have very few employees, even when they are really like spread everywhere in the world. Like Airbnb has only 6,000 employees overall. It's nothing. Uh, and um, yes, and so this is something, um, uh, yes, this is something really new. And maybe as a, just a little bracket, if I may quickly, uh, <laughs> Um, they also have something that we are not uh, observing now. So it's something new that seems to be emerging. I mean, not really new, but I know they have this tendency of colonization. Um, for example, Amazon, uh, they sort of like destroy a lot of uh, local, uh, you know, uh, local shops. And then they open their own physical shops. So they just actually just like you know, sort of like destroy and replace also just very traditional businesses. Uh, so yes, because if we look, Uber is not even making money at the moment. Um, so most of these platforms are not making money, so they need to find a way to make more money. I mean, Amazon is making money. And at least to me, what comes to mind then is some questions about accountability, because you mentioned that user data is being sold. Some platform organizations seem to have certain exploitative practices. There's uh, local business being driven out of business. So what are your views with regards to how we can uh, hold such organizations accountable? I think that what is really complicated, but uh, so this is a bit uh, like going uh, out of uh, my mind, uh, you know, uh, like this, is that, uh, of course, a lot of them are situated in the U.S., at least a lot of them that are influenced influential in Europe uh, are situated in the US. I'm not saying that all big digital companies are in the US because in China, they have also huge digital companies and are very advanced on this as well. But at least about uh, Europeans and maybe Australians, uh, but it's, yeah, I don't know Australia, so it's more difficult for me to talk, but I would assume that it's probably the same. 
so I guess that uh, what is difficult is uh, to create laws, and it's what you know, Shoshana Zuboff, uh, Pasquale, uh, they all argue that it is actually quite difficult, you know, to manage to uh, uh, hold them accountable. So I think that you know, a choice of Europe was to create the GDPR and uh, you know to create uh, local regulations. Um, yeah, and uh, I guess that. Uh, but uh, this would be uh, this would be something. But then you know the question is always a bit uh, difficult because there are all these ideas that you know maybe they should be better at curating uh, the content uh, because of course you know for example Frances Hogan uh, alerted about the fact that Facebook was taking advantage of extreme uh, content uh, to be able to like uh, you know trap somehow users to stay longer on the platform, to expose them more to advertisement and all that. But at the same time, if it's, um, yeah, there is always this question of, do we do we consider these platforms as a public space or do we consider these platforms as media? Uh, and yeah, are they, you know, uh, legitimate to decide what, should be shown or not. So, yeah, I don't know. There are complicated uh, regulatory questions. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. That's a, that's a great, uh, great discussion there about the accountability issues within such organizations. Again, on a broader scale, Elise, what is it that we as accounting scholars and perhaps even accounting practitioners, what is it that we can learn from how these organizations operate? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess that in any case, you know, uh, at least my view would be that, um, you know, um, there are a lot of new numbers that are being produced. Uh, accounting, even as a profession, is or is going to be displaced. Uh, management control, at least, is going to be displaced quite fast. Strategizing as well. Uh, you know, we already see that there are more different um, functions in organization uh, that participate in the production of metrics and so in some decisions that used to be the decisions of the finance function. So this was uh, Arna Boldi uh, at Al in their 2017 uh, article. Uh, so yes, they, they showed all this, you know. Um, so I think that in any case, we sort of uh, need to uh, theorize uh, these phenomena, not necessarily because at the moment we would have, uh, or at least maybe I don't necessarily have the most practical direction Correct answer, but my answer is more we are observing a movement, and we see that this movement is not stopping. And as researchers, we want to be ahead and not behind. And as we develop new theories, then you know we also are able to shed light ahead of time about what is happening. We have talked about platform organizations now quite a bit. And I would like to move now to more traditional organizations, if that's if that's okay, um, because we see the the diffusion of uh, algorithms and algorithmic decision making, or at least the idea, uh, to all sorts of organizations. Uh, and my question to you would be: What, from your perspective, is the role of algorithms, algorithmic decision making in contemporary organizations that are maybe not necessarily the Tinders and, and, and all the other the, the YouTubes of this world. Uh, how are they used and to what extent is that different from what people have done always with statistics and, and all sorts of data? Yeah, um, okay, so I think there are uh, several things uh, about uh, values and um, yeah, um, yeah, so I think that first there is one thing, and this was one thing I was a bit uh, concerned about uh, during my PhD, but maybe, I know, uh, I think that uh, with uh, algorithms in an uh, organization, AI in organization, uh, there have been two uh, very maybe extreme positions. Uh, one, that would be super enthusiastic, like, you know, uh, the famous saying of uh, Anderson in 2008, like, we don't need theory anymore, it's useless because we have super computers that are going to be super performant. Or even, uh, you know, Geoffrey uh, uh, Hinton, he's like a Turing uh, Price, uh, thanks to his uh, deep learning algorithms, who said, 
we shouldn't train radiologists anymore because it's evident that in, that in five years, algorithms will do better than they do. And this was in 2016, and the algorithms are not at all doing better than what the radiologists are doing, you know. So there is this very enthusiastic position, which I think is not very helpful. Uh, and then there is the other position that is very, you know, critical, saying that, you know, it's going to kill all our possibilities of learning, but it's going to create like uh, early exploitation, uh, etc. And I think that um, that maybe, uh, you know, there was, you know, the Gartner, uh, you know, the Gartner uh, curve, you know, uh, where like there was this big hype uh, with all this enthusiasm that was maybe counterbalanced with a lot of criticism. And now I think we're going down the hype, you know, people because people are realizing that it's not going to be the magical tool that will solve everything in organizations, uh, but that maybe it's not going to be the evil either. And so maybe we can do things with this. Then, uh, I mean, maybe, you know, if we step back and we actually think about, uh, you know, what the, these AI algorithms enable to do or not, maybe we can, like, try to stop, start developing new practices. Um, then about the question, the difference uh, with uh, statistics, so, of course, there is uh, one difference, which is uh, the question of uh, automation. Statistics never aimed at uh, automation, while uh, AI aims at uh, automation a lot. Or at least it's used a lot for automation, but this is not really about decision. If we really focus on the question of decision, I would say that yes, it's different because the modes of reasoning are not the same. Uh, and what is perceived to be legitimate and valid knowledge is not the same. So. If, uh, for example, I uh, carry a regression with a statistics mindset. So generally, statistics are uh, based on very explicit hypotheses of regularity. You know, you have distribution laws and you want to make sure that your variables are sort of, you know, you are looking for their laws. So if I carry a, a regression with a statistics mindset, quite quickly, what I'm going to do is uh, to check whether my variables can be uh, said to follow a Gaussian or a normal distribution. And like this, based on this, I will be able to, uh, you know, validate uh, my regression based on a lot of statistical metrics. This is what I would do if I was doing statistics. But if I do a regression with uh, the machine learning mindset, I will never check this. The only thing I will do is to check my prediction power. And probably quite soon I'm going to decide not to do a regression anymore because probably I will find that the uh, prediction power is not as good as with another algorithm. And that's it. That's the only thing I would do. So this is something I think very different, even though you see it's the same tool. Um, and I would say that um, just to go a little bit further about the difference, for example, you know, in uh, there are a lot, there are a few discussions about you know the fact that during the 2007 crisis, uh, there were a lot of uh, portfolio of assets that were either priced or valued based on. Uh, Gaussian or normal distributions. And now there is a debate because there are, like some experts are saying, actually, if they had used a student T distribution with larger tails, maybe, maybe uh, the crisis could at least in part have been avoided. But you know, these kind of debates, they would not be possible with machine learning because we do not make you we do not care about this sort of like uh, distribution of variables uh so there are more i would say black boxes so yes yeah, so i think that's the main difference you are an expert in data science in statistics and you worked as a data scientist also uh how was that communicating those things to managers did they understand what you were doing uh at least what I can say is that um, in one company, I really needed to communicate to managers and to non-technical non persons. And I had a, a colleague, she was a consultant. She was actually an auditor. Uh, 
and uh, yes, uh, she. Um, so it was in the litigation field. So basically, I was doing the audit of the algorithms in litigation, and because she was uh, an accountant auditor, and so I was the algorithmic auditor. Even though there was no certification for this, while she was certified. And uh, yes, and it was uh, very great to work with her because uh, we spent hours and hours together where she was telling me, okay, you need to explain to me so I can try to make sense of it and we can produce a report that people can understand. Uh, so we worked together. I think, I hope I learned some things from her to be able to uh, communicate a little bit better. Um, but yes, so I would say that when I needed to communicate at first, there was her that was really, really helpful. And then later when I was um, an independent contractor, yes, there was my one of my clients who spent, uh, it depends on who, you know, there are some people who get it really fast. Uh, who have the intuition and they get it and it's uh, no effort. And some other people, uh, maybe because they are more skillful at other things and this is less their specialty. And so, yes, it takes longer. And also maybe because I, I'm not uh, as skillful as I, I was not as skillful as I should uh, at explaining, I don't know. <laughs> But it was complicated. And, and the skills is one thing that managers maybe maybe lack in order to understand in detail what, what data science is, how to work with, with AI and algorithms. But the other thing that we see in research is that there seems to be a certain skepticism towards algorithms also. Um, could, you, could you reflect a little bit on that? Why is that? Is that uh, a normal hesitance towards change? Uh, is it maybe protection uh, because managers are the ones making decisions based on their in-depth knowledge that others don't have, right? Uh, is there a legitimate concern? So what is what is your kind of kind of thinking around this algorithm skepticism? Um, I think that uh, it depends on who. Uh, so For example, I think that uh, one, it's true that uh, one of my clients with whom I had to spend really, really, a really long time explaining. And I remember one day I said, okay, I think that now you have to trust me. Either you trust me, either you don't trust me, but I don't think we can manage to, you know, like keep going like this because, you know, um, and um, yeah, and I think that it's true that there is this question of also this loss of control. Uh, because there is this instrument that he doesn't master and that he has to trust. But, you know, it's a little bit the idea that maybe you don't need to use this instrument and then you can use something else. Uh, so it's also a choice. Uh, and maybe you will never be able to get how everything is working and maybe we are spending a really long time Uh, because I'm giving you the impression that you get how it's working, but maybe it's not possible to fully get how it's working. So, yeah. But yes, there is this question. Uh, there is the question of accountability. So if you use a black box and then you have to be accountable for a black box. Uh, for him, I know it was a lot of his problem because these tools, he was my client and he was selling what I did to other clients. So uh, so it was a problem for him, this question of accountability and to be sure that, you know, what he's going to sell uh, is going to be good enough. Um, I think that, uh, yes, there is also this question of change. For example, I've noticed that sometimes the managers, they would ask the data scientists to develop uh, an AI algorithm, but in an interface that is exactly the same interface as what they used to work with. So just as a concrete example, um, they would, uh, you know, uh, for example, they want to uh, be able to, uh, you know, manage the number of products that there are in the warehouse. But, you know, there are a lot of different products, like thousands of products. And so what they used to do was to look at the historical Excel files to, like, have an idea. And now they want a predictive algorithm. But, you know, the data scientist would say, okay, what I could do is to uh, create an algorithm that is going to tell you whether there will be an overall spike in orders, Uh, extra. But the manager will say, no, 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 I want a predictive algorithm that is going to tell me the exact number of products. So 
So like this, she or she can have the you know same Excel file and the same interface. But it's problematic because as a mathematical point of view, you will never have the algorithm is going to be really wrong because you don't have enough observations. But still, uh, this manager would rather have this than something too different. So of course, there is this question of changing the practices. Um, so yes, I think there are a lot of questions. And then, um, then yes, then maybe there is the question about the type of decision. Um, I guess that, you know, um, if uh, probably these algorithms are more useful if it's to help on very operational decisions, you know, so, okay, maybe if I know that in three days there will be a huge spike uh, in the a huge, like, uh, order of, um, huge spike in order of products, maybe, you know, I can say to one truck and uh, two more people to come and work. So it's very operational. Uh, or maybe, you know, my algorithm can uh, be like uh, inspecting my field and tell me, oh, you need to water this part of the field or do something, you know. Also, it's going to work well maybe with things that can be performative, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, for example, uh, you are going to recommend products to a customer and so then it's going to become performative. But I think that, of course, for more complicated decisions where you actually have a choice, a real choice, then it's going to be more complicated. It's what I would assume. Yeah. And the field of digitalization, AI is of course extremely broad. And I mean, the topics that we've talked about today already show that there are so many different different things that could be and need to be explored in more detail. What are the things that uh, you would like to do research on in the future? What are your concrete plans? What are the phenomena that you would like to do more research on? Yeah, uh, so of course, there are so many things, and I guess it's the beauty of our job is that we have too many things to study. <laughs> uh, so this is great. Um, but I would say that uh, until now, what I have mainly done is focus on the work of the data scientists, even though we have not really like talked about it, and focused on platform organizations. Now, you know, I think that AI is actually being used, or AI, or at least I would say uh, algorithms of uh, data analysis with like real big data, uh, you know, like uh, collected in real time, they're actually being used in more and more organizations. And so in the future, I really want to focus and investigate on how AI algorithms shape organizational decision making. And so in particular, um, in the in the public sector, uh, in France at least, uh, there are a lot of uh, open data policies. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, with uh, all these uh, efforts of uh, moving towards more sustainable, uh, a more sustainable world, uh, these data are actually starting to be used. And this is really revolutionary in the uh, public sector, you know, to use this sort of like uh, sensors that can collect real-time data. Uh, so actually, I'm developing a project about it in the field of uh, urban logistics, where these data uh, can uh, assist, you know, uh, the production of uh, regulatory knowledge. Uh, so this is, yes, yeah, so this is one field where I find it really fascinating to see how the public sector is modifying their routines to produce also this new type of knowledge. And yeah, and then there is another field which I think we're, like we have heard a lot about, but I think it's really interesting in any case. It's uh, the field of uh, health and medicine, you know, because the doctors now are using more and more uh, AI algorithms. Uh, and uh, and in particular to assist critical decisions. So of course it's not the algorithm that is making the decision, but still you know the algorithms are used to assist critical decisions, typically about whether I should turn off the machine or leave it on because whether I think the person is going to like recover or not. Um, and so about this, yes, uh, I'm also developing a project uh, with. Um, uh, a group of uh, neurology um, and uh, yes so uh, so this should be interesting so this is in the future we'll see what uh, gets out of this I don't know but uh, at least I'm um, interested with uh, this uh, this project uh, I'm happy with this project 
Uh, we've spoken about uh, the impact of AI and algorithms on managers and controllers and performance evaluation processes. But I was sort of wondering, how does AI shape academic life or how will it change academic life? So do you use any tools yourself? Because, for example, when I open up my Outlook, it's now uh, Microsoft Viva that tells me what items I should focus on or people that I should reach out to because they haven't yet responded or I haven't responded. So what's your take on that? Yeah, so I guess that this is an organizational life in general, and uh, even social life, the fact that we're always nudged, uh, always sort of like, uh, so this is like this, uh, you know, sort of behavior manipulation somehow of, uh, oh, you have to do this or that or whatever. Um, and uh, yes, and I guess there is a lot of information load as well, uh, which maybe for academics specifically is a little bit difficult because we need you know, long period of time to focus. And when you always have something telling you, do this and that and this and don't forget that, of course, it's not uh, really easy to focus really well. It's interesting because uh, yesterday we were talking about this um, a professor of computer science at Stanford. I don't remember his name, but so he's a professor of computer science. And he said, oh, yes, me, you know, I don't have an email. If you want to contact me, you contact my secretary and this person will deal with it because, you know, I need to focus to do some research. Um, How do you deal with that yourself? Because you also being trained as an engineer and a data scientist, what do you use any tools yourself when you go about your research or go about other parts of your academic life? Yeah, I guess that, uh, for example, uh, the paper that we developed with Martin and Jan about QAnon, uh, this one, indeed, I used a lot of uh, Python to be able to scrape the data. Uh, in the end, uh, we didn't... Uh, like decide to do any machine learning of you know we could have done topic analysis or whatever uh, but it's not the way we proceeded but indeed the python skills were like really really useful to get all the data uh, we got for free i mean <laughs> at least so um so yes yes sometimes i open python and i do something and maybe also um with, uh, you know, the, I guess that, for example, the work uh, with uh, how AI algorithms may be used in uh, medicine, a reason why they were interested to work with me is also because of my background in AI. Uh, because, you know, like this, I can sort of understand a little bit the algorithms they develop. I mean, even though they have great data scientists who are much better than me, but it's more the fact that like this, I have a human science, but also like this understanding. Uh, so yes, it is useful sometimes. The phenomena that you that you look at in your research, you said they relate to organizational life uh, in general. Uh, and that on the one hand relates to what we do in research and the questions that we ask and the things that we look at. But it also relates to how we prepare our students for this transformed organizational life, right? Um, what are your ideas, reflections here? I mean, how should we adjust our curricula to kind of account for these changes in organizations that are going on? Yeah, um, okay, so uh, I guess there are several things. I mean, if we take a very, very, very applied point of view, uh, of course, we already know that AI is modifying audit and how auditing is carried, you know, in terms of the data used, in terms of the processes, um, and uh, also, you know, so this is on the very practical uh, auditor job, but also more generally because, you know, auditing is becoming ubiquitous uh, and an increasing number of elements are being made auditable. Even though here, I need to stress that um, there is not really a direct, like a correspondence between the digital elements and the physical persons. Uh, so, of course, accountability is a bit dubious, but yeah, uh, but anyway, so auditing is really uh, deeply, uh, deeply modified. And uh, I also think that if we refer uh, once again to the article of power of 2022 in organization theory, uh, he's also uh, arguing that we need to extend the concept of the audit society to something else, you know, to account for these transformations. So I guess that um, there is the practical aspect of audit that is being modified, but then there is also what we understand by audit and what it means, uh, so all this. So I think that these are things that are important practically and conceptually to uh, maybe uh, like for students. 
Um, then I also think that, you know, there are always more diversified numbers that are used for management control, for strategi strategizing, and that are also really deeply modifying organizational functions. Uh, and so I think that um, here it is really probable that it could be uh, of use to the uh, accounting students and the future uh, controllers uh, to like have a good understanding and knowledge of these new type of data of the transformations they went through of what it means because you know sometimes are presented as neutral but what is it is it neutral if it went through facebook where there is an algorithms so you know i think all these understanding should be given to uh, our students um, yeah, and then also maybe because we're in the era of surveillance capitalism, so probably we need ethics classes about this because um, as uh, students will pro uh, participate in the production of quantification, I think they should be aware of these questions. Yeah, and finally, on a more theoretical point of view, uh, maybe um, we can extend their uh, knowledge about uh, what it is to, like, what is legitimate knowledge, how, uh, you know, quantification uh, extends, what does it mean, you know, why is quantified knowledge legitimate, are all quantified knowledge the same, uh, and so what does it hide and what does it show, and yeah, I guess all this. <laughs> And just, just to ask you a question and to go back to our uh, title that we started this with, do you think that algorithm is a dancer? Actually, it's fun, but uh, in uh, the article on QAnon, uh, um, we uh, are, so there is an author, but I don't remember his name right now, who developed the idea of choreographic power. And, you know, uh, this idea that AI is maybe producing some form of not necessarily, you know, um, yeah, uh, uh, only like a capitalist uh, uh, power. I don't remember what Shoshana Zubov said, but this choreographic power, you know, where it's like choreographing our thoughts. And uh, yeah. so, yes, I think it is a very good uh, metaphor. So, Elise, thank you so much uh, for talking to us. It was great that we've learned a bit more about platform organizations. We've learned about AI. We've learned about how it changes accounting, controlling, and also how it changes academic life and organizational life in general. Uh, again, great stuff that you're doing with regards to your research. And thank you for sharing uh, some tips and hints with regards to what we should focus on with our students as well. So thank you very much. And uh, to our audience, we wish you... Happy accounting. Uh, yeah, and thank you very much for inviting me. And so happy accounting. <laughs> <laughs> happy accounting. <laughs>